0: And today, it is my great honor to be able to share with you as we continue in our series on families. And before we do that, I would just like to invite Jesus to come into our midst. So if you bow your heads, I will pray. Lord Heavenly Father, Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if you are not here, we are doomed. So I pray, Lord God, that as we have gathered here to worship you and to learn from your word, that you will overrule in the process of this communication, that every word will be anointed with your spirit, and every heart will receive that which you want them to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I would like you right now to share with the person beside you, if you've come with someone, or maybe if you're sitting by alone, you can maybe move over and go to someone close by. And if you're online at home, You can talk to someone beside you, or even can put it in the chat. I'd like you right now to share with someone a family memory that you have that is cherished, a happy family memory that you have. Go ahead, share it with somebody. This sounds fantastic. Judging by all the commotion, all the whispering I'm hearing here, it sounds like you have a lot of treasured memories. And rightly so, our family should be a source of memories. As for me, if you were to ask me, I must confess I don't think I could come up with one happy memory because I have so many of them. Whether it be some of our great vacations we've had together or sometimes some very uh, great celebrations, even in the ordinary day-to-day life, I have some very happy memories. And there are times in my family life that I think back, and I call them the hilarious moments. And then, of course, there's the practical jokes. Here's one for you. I'm not really sure if you want to listen to it, but since I have the microphone, you're going to listen to it. So this is my first year of marriage. My husband and I, are, li- are living in a home and all the lights are out because it's nighttime and it's dark. He happens to be on the main floor, just lying on the couch, just resting there and I'm upstairs and the only light that's on is the room that I'm in and suddenly I get this brilliant idea. I'm going to turn off those lights and I'm going to walk downstairs ever so quietly. I'm going to jump into the living room where he is, and scream, and scare him. It sounded like a fantastic idea, except for one very small detail. My wonderful husband had the very same thought at the very same time. (laughs) So, get the picture, it's nighttime, all the lights are off, it's dark. I'm going down the stairs, ever so quietly. He's coming up the stairs, ever so quietly. And somewhere on that stairwell, this happens. (laughs) To this day, I still remember that as a happy memory. Whether we're part of a close family or a distant one, whether we have warm relationships with our family members, or whether we have prickly relations with our family members, we absolutely cannot get away from our families. Because our families affect us in intricate ways, we are so intricately connected to them that we cannot get away from our families. It is in our family life that we we, we gain our values. Our ways of relating to the world we learn while we're growing up in our families. Our worldview is shaped by the family we grew up in. For me, for example, my OCD about cleanliness definitely has come from my family of origin. So part of who we are comes from our families. Families provide a space for children to learn how to relate to others. They learn social and emotional regulation in families. Our defense mechanisms we learn through our families. And families support us in tough times. They provide an essential source of affection and encouragement and belonging, all of which bear or, sorry, all of which uh, build into the core of our personalities. It's pretty safe to say that families are the core of society, or the backbone of society. And families come in all shapes and sizes. There's no such thing as a traditional family. Although some people talk about that, and they moan the fact that modern society is not working because we've lost traditional family, I have a secret for you. There's never been a traditional family, as we will see in a few minutes when we start looking at some families in scripture. Families come, they could be large or small. They could be led by two parents or one parent. Some families are multi-generational and some are just a nuclear family. Some families are led by two same-gender parents. Some are blended families and some are co-parenting families. Every family, no matter how it's shaped, is matter, it matters to God. Whether it is a healthy or a tense family, each is important to God. For you see, family is God's design. He designed humanity in such a way that people are born as infants, totally dependent upon their parents. And they, they're born into this place, in a place where they can grow and be cherished. Consider with me, for example, the animal kingdom, and you'll find it so vastly different. Take, for example, the giraffe. A giraffe is born, and within nine to 12 months, that giraffe is totally independent of its parent. It's an adult. Horses, even less time. Within four to seven months, horses are adults. And then the cute little puppies. If you ever bought a puppy, you'll know that about eight weeks, 8 to 10 weeks, you can take that puppy and separate it from its mother, and then within 11 to 12 months, that puppy is completely full-grown. And then the greatest example, I think, of this one is the sea turtle. Sea turtles spend their entire lives in the ocean, but the mother will come up onto shore once a month, sorry, once a year, dig a hole in the beach, lay all the eggs, close it all up, and go back into the water so that when those tiny little turtles are hatched, they're completely on their own. And somehow, they know that their very first task is to get themselves back into the water. Humans, on the other hand, totally and completely dependent upon their parents. And it takes, what, 18 to 20 years for a child to become an adult? There's a reason for that. God wants us to be cherished and nurtured in those times. Look at the imagery that God uses. In 2 Corinthians 6.18, God says, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. The Almighty God who created heaven and earth is saying, you will be my sons and daughters. He uses this imagery of family. Remember a few minutes ago, I said that family um, builds the core of our personality. God is drawing us into his family to nurture the core of our personalities. Again, in Psalm 68 verse six, God says, he places the lonely in families. Throughout COVID, so many more have experienced loneliness. And during those times, what did we crave most? Connection, connection with other beings. And Jesus is saying, the lonely he will place into families. Families are important to God. He wants us to be nurtured and cared for, loved and cherished. He wants all people to grow into healthy, mature, well-adjusted, God-loving adults. And the main avenue he chose this is the family. But sadly, this is not everyone's reality. In fact, there's a a paradox in that the institution of family, which gives us our greatest joy at times, is the institution that gives us our greatest sorrow. Rifts, dissolved marriages, friction between children and parents, friction between siblings, abuse, loss of loved ones, serious diagnosis, mental illness, fighting over inheritances. All of these are some of the experiences we share and that bring great sorrow to our heart. And there are many more. And all of these are surrounded around family. Think, for example, if someone hurts you, maybe they betray you. You will feel hurt. But if a family member does the same thing, that depth of hurt will be so much greater. So do you carry sorrows involving your family members? Do you carry great burdens for them? Do you have hurts and worries in your heart about some of your family members? Maybe you feel that your family life is just so messy, you can't make it out. Maybe you just can't figure out why you or some of your siblings cannot get along with each other. What are some of your family secrets? I know in an audience this size, there are many, and I carry my own. But you know, this is not unique to modern society. And the Bible has some encouragement in this matter. Encouragement. And that when we look at some families in the Bible, we will see that God came into their messiness. When we go back, way, 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 way back in time, to the very first book of the Bible, about 4,000 years ago, we're introduced to Abraham. Abraham and his family. And we look, as we look at three generations of Abraham's family, we're going to find that God shows up in the messiness of our life. In the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our failures and our sins, God shows up. And he makes all the difference. He's willing to enter our messy lives. He's willing to transform us. He's willing to transform our situations. He's willing to bring wholeness and healing to our families. And then to use our families to be a blessing to many. So let's take a look at uh, Abraham. So Abraham lived in about 2000 BC, and he lived in a place called Haran. And in this particular society that he lived in was polytheistic. Everybody worshipped a different deity. There were deities everywhere. But God calls Abraham and says, you come to me. Leave your family, leave your kindred, leave your home, and come and follow me. Because God was going to make Abraham a great, great nation. Listen to what God says to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Probably when Abraham received this, he and Sarah did not have any children, and they really wanted a child. Because in that society, especially for women, if you didn't have a child, you you weren't really much. You had to have a child. So when he received this, he might have been very, very happy, and that may have been one of their first thoughts. Hey, if I'm going to be a great nation, we've got to have a child. So this is going to happen. He might have been encouraged. We don't know what else he thought. But one thing we can probably guess is he had no idea. He couldn't fathom the greatness of this promise because he had no conception that God was also referring to Jesus Christ. Because as he says, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. We know that Jesus was a direct descendant of Abraham. And with the coming of Jesus and with his death and resurrection, he's opened the way for us. And he is the great blessing for all families. But even before that, there's another layer to this blessing. You see, God was calling Abraham out of a very barbaric society. People did not recognize who God was, but he was gonna call Abraham and make him a nation so that that nation would know God. They would follow Yahweh. Yahweh would interact with them. Yahweh would tell them how to live. He would give them the laws so that they would know how to live. Because before this, in the society around them, people didn't understand God. And it was kind of like a guesswork. And there was a lot of uh, suspicion, or there was a lot of uh, fear. Well, we gotta do this for this God so he can do something good for us. Oh, something's gone wrong, maybe we should say these prayers for this God. And there was this sense of, we don't know how we stand with God. But God was telling Abraham, I am going to be your God. I'm gonna teach you how to live in a way that brings blessing to you. He was gonna be a unique nation. And through that unique nation, All the societies around could look at them and say, whoa, these Israelites really are different. They don't have the same laws we have. They don't have the same cultures and practices that we have. They're really different. It must be their God. So God really had a plan for them. But at the same time, Abraham and Sarah had to wait. They had to wait many years for the birth of that new son. And in the meantime, they experience the anguish of not having something you really want. Have you ever experienced that? You're praying, and you're praying, and you're praying. Maybe it is for a child. Maybe it is for the salvation of a loved one. And you're praying, and you hit discouragement. Abraham and Sarah experienced that. And in those times, God spoke to them again and gave them that encouragement, and gave them that encouragement so they could be lifted up. So he sustained them through the difficult times. Now let's move on with this story. A famine hits the land, and Abraham and Sarah go away and they go into Egypt. There they can get some food. As they approach Egypt, Abraham realizes he has a very beautiful-looking wife. In the society that they live in, where women were considered chattel and they could be taken back and forth by other people, he knew that once they enter that, the Pharaoh, or the ruling parties, someone could take Sarah away from Abraham and kill him on that behalf. For despite the lack of values that they had, one value that this society had in the ancient Near East was, nobody touches another man's wife. That's the one value that everybody had. So he knew this, and so he realized, wow, if I go in there with her and they want her, but they're not gonna take her, because she's somebody's uh, wife, they're going to kill me. So to preserve himself out of fear, he tells Sarah, Hey, Sarah, do me a favor. When we get there, tell them you're my sister. Because in actuality, there is a bit of truth to that. So they go in, and sure enough, someone looks on Sarah and likes her and says, Hey, come on over. He takes her. Not by choice. It's not her choice. She's taken. And let's stop the story right there. We have the advantage of knowing the story, the end. At this moment in time, in this marriage, in this family, they did not know the end. All they know is right now is that Abraham knows he just lost his wife. She's gone. How did he feel? Was he incensed knowing that possibly somebody else is having intimate relationships with her? Was he angry with himself? Could he just kicked himself for what he did? How did Sarah feel? She is now, she woke up that morning as the wife of Abraham, and now she's in a foreign home. She's one of many wives. She's living in a place with a different language and a different culture. And as far as she's concerned, she's never gonna see Abraham again. This family is in crisis. But remember, God is there, and God overrules. Remember that God gave Abraham a promise that he's gonna be a great nation. So despite this mistake that Abraham did, which was really, really a big mistake, God overrules. He protects Sarah. He supernaturally dis- discloses to this Pharaoh that uh, Sarah is actually Abraham's wife. Now you would think that Abraham was afraid that he might die simply because Sarah was his wife. How much more would this person, this king, be angry with Abraham and say, not only did, you, did is she your wife, you lied to me. Certainly, your head is you're going head. Your head is going to be headed, but no, he simply gave Sarah back, and away they go. For you see, God had a plan. Abraham's sin and fear did not thwart God's plan. So let's move on. Abraham and uh, um, Sarah eventually have their promised child, Isaac. Isaac grows up, and when he grows up, he becomes. Uh, he marries Rebecca. Now, Isaac grew up in Abraham and Sarah's home, so he knew how to pray. He knew how to speak to God. So when Rebecca and Isaac have their first crisis, where they really want a child and they can't have one, Isaac prays. So we know that Isaac is in communion with God. Rebecca, too, is in communion with God, because when something was happening in the pregnancy and she couldn't understand what it was, she asks God, what's going on? and God reveals to her that the older son will serve the younger son. This is significant, not so much to us in our society, because birthright doesn't really mean much to us, but in this society, oh, it meant a lot. So we, we know that Rebecca and Isaac now have this direction that they understand that their family's not gonna be like every other family, because the older person is not gonna inherit the birthright, it's gonna be the younger one. Okay, time goes on. The babies grow up into toddlers, into childhood, and now they're adults. And what we find out is, these parents made a great mistake. They showed favoritism. Isaac preferred Esau, the older twin, and Rebecca preferred Jacob, the younger twin. Parenting mistake 101, never show favoritism. But this family did. And then we get to a point where Isaac feels that it's time to give the birthright to his sons. He calls Esau his favorite. And he's going to give him the blessing. Rebecca hears of this and says, oh, well, this can't happen because this is not God's plan. What's he thinking? That it dawn dawned on you, why didn't Rebecca go in and talk to Isaac? Hey, Isaac, what are you thinking? Do you not remember what God said? What are you doing? She didn't do that. We don't know what their relationship was like. So she <laughs> resolves to use some deception. And Jacob falls along with her and they deceive Isaac and Jacob receives the birthright, which he rightly was supposed to be given, but in the wrong way, they use deception. So what happens? Esau is livid and he wants to kill Jacob. So Jacob has to flee. Rebecca has now lost her son, the one she favored. Jacob goes away and he's gone for about 20, 20 some odd years and we never hear again of, of uh, Rebecca. So we assume that she maybe never saw that son again. The brothers do not speak to each other now. A huge rift in this family. But God was working behind the scenes. God was patient with Jacob. Jacob was a little on the selfish side. And he was a little bit deceptive. If you hear one of his prayers to God, he says, God, if you do this, 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 and this, I will follow you. You can see who's in charge of his relationship with God. He had not given himself completely over to God, but God was patient. He goes away, Jacob, for 20 some odd years, he marries, gets a new family, and eventually comes back. What happens to this family? Jacob is back in the promised land where he should be, and the brothers have reconciliation. Let's move on. Time goes on, and now we talk about Jacob's family. Jacob's family was very messy, far from traditional. He had more than one wife. Um, He had children from multiple women, so it was very multi-generational. It was extremely blended, and there was a lot of problems in this family. Jacob, too, showed some uh, favoritism to the children of the wife he preferred. Again, what does this cause in the family? The other brothers were probably fighting for their father's attention. Obviously they became very angry with the recipient of this extra attention, which was Joseph. Uh, They hated him. There was a lot of struggle in this family. The brothers hated Joseph so much that one day, when Joseph was going out to find them and come back with a report to his father, they decided, let's just kill this guy. And so they proceed to do that. They're going to kill him. One of the brothers says, well, let's just put him in this hole here for now and then just so happens a caravan is going by and the brothers get a better idea yeah let's not kill him let's not kill him let's not let's not his blood be on us let us just sell him away so they sell their younger brother as a slave talk about a difficult messy complicated family those brothers then had to go back home and tell their father that joseph was dead so, what do they do? They take Joseph's coat off, they kill an animal, they cover it in blood, and they come home and tell their dad, Is this Joseph's jacket? And the father says, Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And his father is full of grief. I cannot comprehend how those brothers lived day after day for years watching their father grieve, knowing that they were the cause of that, and knowing. That they lied to their father, and for all they knew, uh, Joseph was alive. How did they live with that guilt? I do not know. But I do know that when we have a lot of guilt, it tends to destroy our families. What happened to Joseph? How would you feel if you were Joseph? You woke up, you were the prized object of your father's. Family, and now you go to bed at night and you are a slave in a foreign country in a language you do not know, and you don't know if you're going to see your entire family ever again. Moreover, you are deeply, deeply wounded knowing that this has been a result of your brothers. Very, very painful. But God was there. As we talk about Joseph when he's in prison and when he is in the Pharaoh's house, The scripture says that God was with him. Was his life easy? Absolutely not. But God sustained him. God carried him. And God's plans were not thwarted. Because God used what the brothers wanted for evil to propel his kingdom forward. So that Joseph, who was in Egypt, and yes, it was a very difficult time for him. But through that time, he managed to become second in power only to Pharaoh himself. And through his actions and through the revelations that God gave him, he saved that nation. And the nation of Israel then came to Egypt, setting the stage for the next chapter in the history of the Israelites. That family was saved because of what Joseph did, because of Joseph's connection with God and how God overruled in his situation. So there we have it, a family with three generations. God sustained them through their difficult times. God took care of their needs. God worked in spite of their poor choices, their mistakes, and their sin. God used this family to participate in the ultimate plan of redemption. And God is still working today. His plan has not changed. He wants to redeem this world. And yes, he wants to use us and our families. Our families struggle because we live in a broken world But despite our own personal brokenness, there's God, and God is working. In the midst of our brokenness, and our failures, and our messy lives, God makes all the difference. He's willing to enter the messiness of our lives. He's willing to transform us. He's willing to transform the situations we are in. He's willing to completely change our attitudes so we see the same situation in a different light. He's willing to comfort us when we are grieving. And then he's willing to use our families to be a blessing to the world. So I encourage all of you, think of those family members that are causing you so much grief and sorrow. Bring them to God. If you've received a promise from God, from Jesus, for a family member, hang on to Jesus, hang on with all your life. Keep pleading because the battle is the Lord's, it's not ours. Hang on to Jesus, and that's why I say thank you so much.